Hello, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast, a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. My name is Morgan Dix, and this show is brought to you by AboutMeditation.com. And today, I am thrilled to share with you my interview with Noel Coakley. Noel is a psychotherapist and a meditation teacher and the founder of the Boston Center for Contemplative Practice. In this discussion with Noel, we cover a lot of territory. And the first 30 minutes or so, we really cover Noel's biography. We talk about his own path, how he came to meditation, and the different teachers who were influential for him. And then we dive into a host of really incredible topics, some of my favorite. We go into the topic of spiritual bypassing, which is something as a meditator most people should understand. It's, a, it's definitely a potential pitfall on the path for all of us. And because we're both meditation teachers, mindfulness meditation teachers, we talk about the experience of teaching mindfulness meditation and how we came to that. Noel speaks very beautifully about the relationship between addiction and mindfulness. We talk about the challenges of parenting and how mindfulness meditation can really support you in that context. We talk about where Buddhist psychology and Western psychology meet, both in theory and in practice. And that's a beautiful thing about this entire show today is we really move back and forth between theory and practice, between liberation and then the gritty work of the day-to-day composting of our experience, of our challenges and of our victories. So I think you're going to love this show. It, it, I had a blast talking with Noel, and he is really just a font of wisdom and experience. So I think you're going to love it. Before we jump into the show, I wanted to tell you about an upcoming mindfulness meditation training. It's called Coming Home, a five-week mindfulness meditation training program. I'm teaching it, and in that course, it starts on February 8th, 2023. And if you're listening to this podcast after that date, don't worry. We are offering these mindfulness courses really every two to three months now. So you can check it out on our website at aboutmeditation.com. But in this five-week course, we really go into the fundamental principles of mindfulness meditation. And it's an opportunity for me to share with you my 28 years of experience in meditation. I love the experience of sharing my passion for this practice with you. And during the course, you're going to learn all the basic principles of mindfulness meditation. We also really will meet together once a week to go in depth into a new principle in each class. And then in the mornings, we'll have short sessions. They're optional, but we will have drop-in meditation sessions every morning, Monday to Friday, for 30 minutes where we can come together and sit and I will lead a guided meditation during that time. So I really encourage you to take advantage of this offering. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to work with you. My experience so far of leading these courses is it's just incredibly inspiring, heart opening. It's an opportunity to really 
uh, because it's a heart-based practice, it's really a beautiful opportunity to just drop into and inhabit that heart space on a daily basis and get deeper and deeper into your practice. If you're a seasoned meditator and you want just some fuel, if you want to meditate with others and enjoy that field of inspiration that we generate together by meditating together on a daily basis, you can get that. If you're new to meditation, this is a great opportunity for you to really launch your practice with a lot of momentum and just get some very solid foundational principles under your belt that will serve you for life. So check it out. That's over at aboutmeditation.com. You can find it on the homepage or just go to the courses section and it's the coming home mindfulness meditation training course. Also, listeners of the One Mind Meditation Podcast can use the following discount code to get an additional 20% off the current sale price. So that discount code is OneMind23. That's all one word, OneMind23. Just plug that in in the shopping cart and you can take an additional 20% off the current sales price. That's exclusive for listeners of the One Mind Podcast. So now, let's jump into my interview with Noel Coakley. All right, Noel, welcome to the show, man. I am so glad to have you on here, and I've wanted to have you on here for a while, so welcome. Thanks. Thank you so much, Morgan. I, I appreciate the invite, and it's just great to get to reconnect with you. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's good to see you. Awesome. You too. And everybody, um, Noel Coakley is the founder and owner of the Boston Center for Contemplative Practice. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's a psychotherapist and a meditation teacher. And Noel and I met like kind of there's layers to it. We both lived in the same area around Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. I noticed Noel because he's this was probably back in like 2018 or 2017 because, you know, he, he stands out. He's got this long braided ponytail and a beautiful beard. And it's like, <laughs> who, who's this guy, you know? And I just felt like this attraction to Noel. Somehow I'm going to intersect with this guy. And then it turns out I learned that you were the director of the center where a bunch of my very close friends studied with Dan Brown Right. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, th I think I met, then I saw your wife at like the waking up the, f or wake up the earth festival. And I just like, right. yeah, I think I went up to her and then, and I was like, ah, I know a bunch of friends, you know, who are close with Noel. And then I think we met in Cafe Nero. I think I came That's up right. to you. Yeah. That's right. And then, you know, eventually this and that happens. And then we're on retreat together with Dan Brown and yeah. he, you know, Dan Brown for everyone. We, we, he's been on the show Previously, uh, he was a Mahamudra teacher, and I I spoke about that on the show, and I, I highly recommend those interviews and then my my report on the retreat with him. That was very transformative for me. But uh, Noel also was student of Dan's for a little while, and and then so you know we we have this shared overlapping history, which is very rich. It's not not that long, but in a short time, very rich, and then. The final chapter of that was Noel was, I was on his email list and he was promoting a teacher training program. And I called Noel and I was like, Hey man, what, what do you think about this? And he's like, I, I fully endorse it. I took it and now I'm supporting it, you know, as a assistant director. So 
and then I took the course. So, you know, it's a rich kind of deepening friendship. And I, I really appreciate the work you're doing, Nolan. I'm, I'm so psyched you're going to have a chance to share your wisdom and experience with my audience today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I appreciate all those. It's it's just neat how when you laid that out, it's like, wow, we do have a lot of those touch points. Yeah. Cool. You know, it's like, I guess we've been friends before. <laughs> yeah, know? well, right. I definitely believe that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that we're in each other's life, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. And no, there was this sort of like, like little part of like the intimacy of you picking us up for the retreat each morning, like because we all oh, went yeah. to this <laughs> little, yeah, we went to these little this little side parking lot outside of town, and then Noel would show up in his van and like kind of ferry like five or six of us into the retreat. And it always felt like that was sort of like this consecrating like threshold that we'd pass through and, and <laughs> being with you and we, you'd have your coffee and we'd like kind of move slowly into that retreat. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was very sweet. We had a nice little crew in our morning rides there. Yeah. 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 Let's get into it, man. I, I, there's so many things that I want to ask you about and, and we've talked about some of these things, but I love to start at the beginning, just, would love to just hear a little bit about uh, your backstory and if you could share with people, like, how did you end up becoming the owner of uh, the BCCP? Like, how, how did you get into meditation? How long have you been practicing? A little bit about your arc in relationship to becoming a meditation teacher. Uh, what, what were some of the, like, significant events uh, along that path for you? Yeah, well, so I guess I can go to the beginning first um, in that I think I've pinpointed it down to this in terms of where I really first started turning the direction of, of Buddhism and when I heard a song. And mm. do you remember when the the BC boys used to do the Tibetan Freedom Concerts in New York? Oh, yeah, vaguely, yes. It was in the 90s and um, there was one year that they they put a recording together, you know, and they'd pick a song from each artist. And they had on each disc for each day, they had opening and closing prayers from the lamas and the monks. And one of the recordings on there was a woman singing the Omani Padme Hum prayer. Yung mm. Chin Lamo, that's her name. And um oh my God, it was I'll have to send you the recording of it. Yes. And, of course, when I heard it, I had no idea literally what she was saying, but I was like, what is this? Yeah. What is this woman singing about? There's something familiar, like something I, I understand in my body about this. And it was both heartbreaking and joyful. It was just something, you know, I was like, okay, what is this? What is she singing? What is, what's this about? And I remember trying to I was about to say Google, but that wasn't a thing. Look up on the like internet available at the time, which was like <laughs> America Online or something. Yeah. You know, typing in Om Mani Padme Hong and, you know, not getting a lot of helpful information. But it's that's where that's what started trying to figure out what this person was singing about. I was just so moved by it. I needed mm. to try to figure, try to understand what she's singing about. Like there's and a that, hint, a hint in the song, like a suggestion um, of some something. It was yeah, it was a very direct communication. Um, hmm. it's like so many, so much music can be. It was really melodic. And it was not you know monotone type of prayer. It was right, like a song. And 
not really any teachers available to me at that time or where I grew up. I grew up south of Boston. Everyone was Irish Catholic, culturally at least. You know, everybody was sort of wrapped into that culturally, but not particularly spiritually. That just wasn't, that's really part of the deal. That opened a door to like some sort of spiritual path. And I remember reading The Art of Happiness was the first book I picked up mm-hmm. that from the Dalai Lama. And it was like, oh, okay, innate goodness. Interesting. Right. <laughs> a, little, a little different than the original sin message. Totally, yes. Um, so just even just general concepts like that were like, oh my God, oh, or there are, there are factors that lead to happiness and joy and ones that lead to suffering, like just laying out the cause and effect that yes. recognize about that. So all this really empowering stuff. I remember going to see the Dalai Lama speak once in high school. He spoke in Boston, um, was just really moved by that. So that just mm. kicked that off and was without a teacher really until after college. I didn't really meet a teacher. It was just doing as best I understood, trying to practice from books, from things I read. And it wasn't until after college that I met Kagulama named Sering, Sering mm. Windup, mm. owned a store, a retail store, like a, a Buddhist shop and uh, on Mass Ave in Cambridge. And um, he jokes because he's he would just give stuff away all the time in the right. store. The store closed. Oh, God. Like, all right, not so good at retail, but I'm going to stick with teaching. But he, he would have Sunday mornings, he would have groups in the back of the store, and there'd be a bunch of people, and he'd be teaching. Was he a, lam- a lama? Yeah, or a rim- yeah, yeah. Lama. Not a monk, not a monastic, married to uh, someone from the U.S., children. But I grew up grew up in the east and r- was running stores and shops there and and got a good grip of the english language and noticed he was doing a lot of teaching sort of on, on the fly serendipitously and then he connected with a whole bunch of lamas of many different traditions there and ended up being a translator for a lot of teachers hmm. so he would travel and translate into english which i mean as you know the translation it's so important it's yeah you know, not just the word for word, and often it can't be word for word, it's conceptual. So how things are getting translated really matter. Totally. So he had developed that skill set and and then come to the States and you know, but by those teachers after developing that skill set, he was he became a llama and he was asked to continue teaching and keep keep going. Mm. Um so he was the first teacher I had met with and we would study like Dogo Kinsei writings and that was really the like proper door opening as far as really getting into practice. Yeah. In retrospect, I, I guess we can probably always say this as we move forward here, but like I was there for it, but also not ready for it. Right. You no, know, I'm in my like early mid twenties <laughs> being an early mid 20 year old, you know? And, and so my eye was like on it, but not really, you know? So he opened the door, but I wasn't really ready to walk through it entirely, if I'm he, to be honest. Yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of conflicting aspirations and impulses at that age. Yeah, for sure. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, How, what, when was that? Like the, Was that like the early aughts or late yes. aughts? Yep. Yeah, I finished college in 2003. So this is like maybe a few years after that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yep. Um, he's now a chaplain at one of the hospitals here in Boston of Beth Israel. So, mm. you know, 
helping people when they're sick and dying and um, doing amazing work with that. Nice. And he's taught at the center a bit and, and we've re- remained friends and remained connected. But he was, was yeah. Well, I, I have a question about that. Like, so in terms of what you were describing, this sense of like one foot in, one foot out, not and not necessarily being like he opened the door, but maybe you weren't quite ready at the time. Did you have any experiences with him, like insights or openings that made you feel like, oh yeah, this, you know, I'm meant to be here. Like, this is part of what I'm looking for. Was there something that happened? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that was both, both the recognition, the way you just said it, and probably what freaked me out. Right. Yeah. He is, was, is just the sweetest guy absolutely you know you feel that unconditional loving space around him you know he doesn't really have to say a word and there's a way you can just relax around him which is both amazing and when that kind of being is also unfamiliar that can also be horrifying yeah totally (laughs) you know yeah Uh, so so I, I couldn't have articulated this at the time, but now looking back, there was just like I started distancing myself a little bit, you know, just not connecting as often. I think that's what it was. Like I wasn't quite ready for that kind of space. Yeah. I wasn't there yet. You right, know? Right. Um, and that took a little bit more time healing in ways that made it okay to be in that space. Mm-hmm. I think I can still credit those moments for push it kicking that off you know even that strong reaction to all that is kind of start to cause an effect chain of like oh okay there's that you know that's always in the back of your head like you can't unknow that right you know so i kicked it down the road a bit but it was still in the back of my head like we have to come back around to this yeah yeah (laughs) right this isn't going anywhere um you know so i yeah. So then what, what, where did you go from there? Yeah. Well, so at, at the time I was also, you know, I was a school teacher. I was teaching special ed and I started switching gears after doing that for a few years, just recognizing I was more relationally focused than educationally focused per se and switched it up to go to school to be a psychotherapist. So mm. around that time, so now I'm going to school for that, which was very, process our own stuff oriented yeah there's no hiding theoretically we just had to get in it so doing that i'm in therapy myself i'm in uh, now a loving relationship with now my wife but at the time you know just getting to know her i am doing a yoga teacher training where i'm reconnecting with the body you know and do uh, and from a bunch of different angles healing is starting to happen you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. reconnecting with myself opening up to that kind of space um coming sort of back home to myself in, in all those ways we kind of disconnect from ourselves and then all the things that come of that disconnection those things started to kind of unravel a bit you know all all together at the same time so as that's all happening shortly after i ended up meeting dan mm. so I mean, also, you know, just mention this in, in my sort of healing and recovery process. I, I quit drinking right before I met Dan. This is now nine, 
little more than nine years ago. Yeah. And, you know, I know that was a pattern that had built up in my life as an unhealthy coping strategy, you know? Right. And, you know, it wasn't, my experience wasn't like an everyday all the time sort of thing, but, you know, I could draw a clear through line to all the times I acted in ways that were out of alignment or, or I regretted things. It was like, well, that's the common denominator there. Yeah. Um, you know, so nine years ago I had my first child and this is just before also meeting Dan and right mm. after I stopped drinking, like everything was starting to like click together sort of rapid fire. Yeah. You know, it was just enough like, okay, reconnected with the body, reconnected with emotional spaces, reconnected with healthy relationships. It was okay to let that relationship go at that point, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's when I connected with Dan the first time. Dan um, Brown, yeah. Dan Brown, yeah. I actually landed on one of his programs. I needed continuing ed credits for psychotherapy. And I was working at an outpatient uh, mental health clinic I was in charge of running the groups. And at that time, I was having a tough time successfully pitching the idea of running a mindfulness-based or yoga-based, a movement-based therapy group. It just wasn't flying with the people I was working for. Mm. And he had a continuing ed program through Harvard Extension School. And it was geared, it was teaching meditation geared towards mental health and medical practitioners. Yeah. So I thought, well, this is great. This is going to be right in that language wheelhouse. I really took it thinking like, I, what I'm going to learn is how to talk about this to the people that I'm going to need to pitch it to. Yeah. Right. That's That was my intention going into it. Uh, you know, after introducing himself the first, first day, he was like, well, so this is about awakening. You know, and that was just like a pan to the face, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I didn't know I wanted to hear that, but that it was like, oh my God, that's okay. Uh, you know, you've got my attention. I'm here. Totally. You know, and there was there was this skill set in moving from like this, you know, PowerPoint oriented factual information about Western science on meditation to, you know, by the midweek we're talking about the elephant path and everybody's sitting on the floor seamlessly. And in the room was I happen to be the only therapist in the room. Everyone else happened to be physicians of some so, sort. Mm, mm. And the skill set of moving from that kind of way of talking about things into a very traditional way of talking about things was pretty seamless. And so I was, I was lighting up at that. And yeah. Like, I get to learn from this person. Yeah. So that's how that relationship started. Nice. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a lot less common then because I mean, a lot of this was coming online, but people who could move so seamlessly like Dan did, yeah. Between those two worlds, even in 2019 when I took the retreat with it, or 2020 when I took that retreat with him, I mean, I'd never experienced anyone just so fluent and fluid between those two modalities, like those two worldviews, yeah. really. Right. And just to lay that out for folks listening to not familiar, I know you, he had, you had him on the podcast. Go you. for it. He's a, a Western psychologist. That was his sort of academic path and then learned from the llamas as well. So when we say kind of mixing that language that he would get into Western psychology and use that language or use academic ish language, which often for us culturally is like the way we need the buy-in. Right. You just hear it justified that way or something, maybe less so these days, even since then. Right. Yeah. 
probably that shifted some, but probably that's still true on the whole. So he was coming from that that background. Yeah. You know, had some teachers from a few traditions. So just being able to introduce that stuff. Um, and he's a translator too. So back on that topic again, he could he could translate text and talk about the concepts directly. Yeah. So yeah. So with Dan, like, did you find that so you studied with him for what, like six to eight years? That's right. Yeah, I was gonna say seven ish, something like that, maybe yeah. seven or eight years. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and what uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, he the after that continuing ed. I was finding out, you know, what else he was up to and ended up at a retreat at what was then Samadhi. Right. So that's how I got connected with that physical space, right. which I, as you know, ended up, ended up taking over. Mm -hmm. um, but they, you know, I found out they also had offices there. I, I needed an office for doing psychotherapy. And I was like, after having a, positive experience at the retreat i was like oh i can rent an office here and just yeah. hang around this is oh. cool <laughs> totally so that's how i ended up over there yeah and everyone that that samadhi was owned by john churchill so and and we yep, had yeah. yes and we've interviewed john on the show too so and i right hi on. highly recommend that episode is really great cool. um cool. yeah yes he was you know dan as you know, I mean, we've both been in those retreats together. He's yeah. got a skill set of, you know, conveying practice instructions. I think that was, you know, overall sort of the biggest, a lot of takeaways from the relationship. Yeah. yeah. Very crystal clear. It was coming from Mahamudra, which my understanding is compared to a, a lot of particular traditions or schools, like that has a lot of detail around practice. Yeah. Direct practice instructions. Yeah. Um, little tips, little tweaks, little things that just dial in and put language on experiences that are tough to put language on. Right. So he was good at that. And I think that, so that was you know, really learning the step-by-step -step logic of how to approach it, plus the language of how to introduce it, um, you know, while peppering in that Western psychology and seeing an example of that, it was just... Uh, I'm very grateful for that relationship and for that example from mm, him. Me too. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. He and, he also, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. He opened up the, the bun world, you know, in terms of connecting right. with people too. So that, that's, I guess I want to think about the through line and the teachers I'm connected with now. Uh, it was because of his connections and meeting people in the bun world that I am now connected to that. And, and just to share, that's one of the schools. It's not, it's technically not a school of Buddhism, right? Um, right. But it's still in the family. You know, it's now the, the Dalai Lama recognized it as, you know, another equally valuable lineage tradition um, from Tibet. But for a while, it was kind of seen separately. At the end of the day, the practices are all ultimately similar and getting at all the same stuff and yeah. somewhere yeah. somewhere along the line um they they mixed in the waters with enigma zokchen and you know the the bunpo will say no that came from us and the enigma zokchen will say no that came from us and it's like it, it kind of doesn't matter to me but yeah they all cross paths and amplified and helped one another articulate things and and they're fairly similar in that the only the, a major difference I'd say about Bun and other traditions is that they also have the another side 
which we might say is like the shamanistic side. Yes, right. Right. So there's there's that whole side of that lineage, and it it predates Buddhism in Tibet and and was throughout a kingdom called Zhangjung that went all the way through like the Middle East. It was pretty big. Um, so it's got up got a long history. Well, and wasn't it wasn't it like I, I seem to recall uh, Dan framing it also as like it was it was the original religion it was the original indigenous kind of tradition in Tibet before Buddhism and that and that and that's why also like a lot of the bone uh, deities wrathful deities stuff like that a good number of those come from to us from Bon is that is that right that's my understanding as well yeah and there's you know some sometimes you hear the distinction between bun and yungdrung bun and bun is sort of like this a general term sometimes it's even used pejoratively you know like oh that's just bun like you know um you'd hear that from other schools of buddhism saying like oh that's just sort of like these savage practices over here like that's just bun so sometimes you read that word and it's like a general and pejorative term yeah and, or, or just a a general way to name a lot of different types of shamanistic practices from a lot of different places that like sometime back in history weren't really tied together. Right. Then, then there's what they call Jung Boom, which is more organized, which is more like the schools of Buddhism that, you know, we might understand from the other schools that um, there's the Sutra and Sakta Jokten paths. And, you know, it's, They've got their lineage of Buddhas. They've got their lineages of of texts and, and things like that. Right, so, right. So sometimes they just use the word bun, but sometimes you'll see that distinction of Jungdung bun is is you know what we learn now, and then bun could be this more generic term for like all the different things that existed prior to Buddhism in Tibet. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. That's helpful. Um. All right. So then, okay. So. There's the the Dan Brown chapter, and then yep. uh, do do you want to say anything more about your time with Dan before we move to David? No, you know, other than again, if there's just a lot of a lot of different types of things learned from from watching him teach. You know, his style of teaching was yeah. something we learned from. You know, the directness and specificity of the language and the it was all just a, you know, a big door opener. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for that time with him. Mm-hmm. And it, it just opened up, opened up that Mahamudra and Dzogchen world. Yeah. I, I mean, it was one, one thing that always stuck out to me, and this was maybe against the backdrop of my own experience with Andrew Cohen. Dan would have this, I don't know if it was a measurement, but he he would talk about how many of his more senior students were stabilized in awakening and coming from Andrew who, and Dan would like ground that in these sort of study, these, you know, in research and studies and these sort of, I guess they were qualitative like surveys and research. And I always found that interesting and compelling because like, you know, our, our community broke down in, in some measure because Andrew wouldn't, ultimately let go of control and empower his own students and tied to that was this I- this idea that they they weren't established in the same place that he was mm-hmm. and 
you know, I think a lot of teachers struggle with that. And, you know, some lineages are more tight around that. Some are more open around that. And, you know, that's a whole separate conversation. But I did find that interesting that he would really point to like, you know, I have all these students who are really established at 90% awakening or whatever. And that's their kind of center of gravity. Like, what did you make of that? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah. No, I I think I think the great takeaway about all that was sort of just this empowering and confidence building of look, you can all everybody you can do this. Yeah. You know, um and, and let's look let's look right at the limiting beliefs that might come up for you around why you think maybe you can't or yeah, others have done this or something, or what separates you from yeah, the others and sort of recognizing that commonality of Buddha nature for everybody. Yeah. You know, like, like, yeah, absolutely. You can do this and and look, there are steps for this and there are ways this has been taught and mm. thousands and millions have done this before. So yeah. I think that's the upshot of that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think it could also veer into, you know, this is the danger of keeping a little bit too much score on all that. Yes. Right. You know, and getting a little bit caught on, on that, and um, I think that has the potential to draw in people who are going to be seeking special states, mm. and who um, are gonna. There's a fine line between like, okay, these are serious students versus people just seeking like, oh, this is the good stuff. Like, this is the you know, this is the secret <laughs> sauce. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, this is the. I'm going to be awakened now. There's something to that. Chogim Trungpa calls it spiritual materialism. That I think keeping tabs on it like that and sharing that inevitably, regardless of the intention, has the outcome of creating spiritual materialism. Okay. All right. So this is a topic that we're. Gonna, I want to actually go into with you the whole con- context of spiritual bypassing. So let's get to the, to the end of your biography here, and and then we can go into that because that's kind of that's come up. Well, that was... I hope I hope today's not the end, but well, yeah, yeah, like current. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a few. I guess a few other teachers relative to this context. Yes. Two teachers that come to mind that I definitely want to mention are David Nick Turner and Geshe Gellick. And David and I connected when I was running the center. You know, I've I've got experience organizing people and pulling people together around a common purpose, but not really a lot of business experience, right? So I was talking to a friend named Beck Conan who runs a company called Own Births, and um, she's a, a midwife and a birth right. coach. You're doing a course with her. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing a, a course for parents. And she, I was talking to her and I said, look, you know, I don't know what I'm doing here when it comes to running a business and there's a lot for me to learn. And, mm. you know, I need some advice, but I also need that advice coming from at least a similar orientation on uh, value system and what's important. And there's a lot of advice on, you know, how to make a lot of money. And there's nothing wrong with that. I actually needed to learn how to deal with being okay with money too. But you know, they're just sort of only oriented towards bottom line advice. I think there's plenty of out there and I, that's not what I was looking for. So she was like, you got to talk to David. This is the guy who, you know, really can connect Dharma and how you're making a living. 
he has since written a book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. He hadn't written that at the time, but, you know, so that's how I first connected with him was looking for business advice, but something that wasn't going to be contradictory to what the, to the value system, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was the initial connection, but it became clear pretty quickly that, uh, he was going to, he was another teacher for me. And just in this very grounded down to earth way is able to weave principles from Buddhism, just right into everyday life, like really bring it down to earth. Like let's, mm. let's, let's use this to think about how you're approaching your business. Let's use this to think about how you're thinking about your skill set or where you need help. And, you know, so it was it was great in that sense. You know, again, I thought it was just going to be business advice, but it just very quickly turned into like, oh man, this this guy's great. <laughs> he knows how to tap into creative mind space. He knows how to teach Dharma in this really down to earth. How are you going to get the permits tomorrow? Way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I started connecting with him, and he was offering the mindfulness meditation teacher training that you and I have both taken at this point, right? Yeah, yes. Um, and I, I did the last one that was in person before the pandemic um, when they were doing them at Tibet House in New York City. And that was a huge, I just found it, and maybe you found this the same, you know, I, I was really freaked out at the idea of doing any sort of teaching. Yeah. You know, um, the message, whether it was like how it was delivered to me or how I misunderstood it or whatever, or that's probably also some convenience in just like hiding behind this. But like, it's like, man, like got to respect lineage. It's really bad. If you say stuff you're not supposed to say, like, that's bad. Don't be arrogant. You know, who do you think you are? Right. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and there's such a depth to that world that it's intimidating. You feel like you can never know the whole whole field there so it's like who am i to talk about any of this stuff right and david through that teacher training has a skill set of being very clear about isolating particular skill sets or practices and in that case it was mindfulness and saying like look we can dial in on this we can have clarity on what we're doing and what we're not doing know for ourselves what the boundaries and limitations are of our skill set and and really stick to that and then be confident about that and that lit some things up for me big time. Mm, mm. You know, um, that just opened like just that kind of confidence to be like, okay, look, if I'm just clear with myself on, I, I'm good on this knowledge base, not so much on these, like just kind of stick to the lanes where I'm comfortable and, and I keep learning as a student and have people I can check in with and that will check me. This is not only okay, but important. Yes. Yeah. You know, not just not bad, but something that should be done. Totally. And Geshe Gellick, who is the bone mama that I've been meeting now with for a number of years, uh, has also been really encouraging on that front. He he takes his approach of like, look, you know, you're not supposed to be the end point on any teachings you receive. Mm. You know, that's, that's almost selfish in a way. You know, um, yeah, doing it in the right context is really important. Like, it's not just, you don't just bring it up whenever or wherever. But when someone asks, the better you are equipped to respond skillfully, the more loving that is. And you have you have an obligation. Yeah. Um, so those two teachers, 
in that way have uh, I I I owe a debt of gratitude to them for the confidence uh, in being able to offer things to other people that that feel helpful. Yeah, and be okay with my own limitations, but confident what, with what I can do. That's awesome, and I do do resonate with with that. I mean, the tradition I came from, you know, my t- my teacher, unless you were firmly established in what he would call the awakened state, you know, which by the way, he was the kind of sole arbiter of that, <laughs> you know, yeah. he, yeah. And he, he was not gonna, you know, he really was reluctant to empower people. You know, it turned out that that was not a wholesome position really for him because a lot of his students were extraordinary people, like just extraordinary people who had been serving in that context for 30 years and were clearly like lit up by the teachings and could transmit and communicate that in very powerful and innovative novel ways. And, you know, that was threatening for him, but that, that like, so that care, you know, we, I internalized a lot of that, the same sort of scripts that you were describing. So it was helpful certainly with David because in that teacher training, because he, he just had such a light touch, as we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah. He brought so much humor. And with that humor and that light touch, these as you, again, spoke to, just these super clear guardrails to the whole thing, like, hey, stay within your lane and mm-hmm. you're good. You know, just you'll be fine. You teach what we're, we're talking about and we're instructing you on. And then, and then for me, you know, it was also like, you know, having been in a, a more or less a monastic context for 14 years, I was just dying to share my love and my passion for practice yeah. in a way that was different than like a canned course or even the podcast. It, it, it's just, it's been so transformative and so meaningful and so purposeful for me, that practice, that, I, that having even that simple certification you know, it was just like a vehicle for being able to to share on a much deeper level in a teaching context. So, yeah, I I, I really, you know, I'm grateful for to David for what he's doing. Absolutely, yeah. Just again, that confidence and yeah, the opposite of that being threatened that you mentioned earlier. You know, and I think yeah, that, that thing comes out of. You know, you can lean on the like the lineage will be mad sort of thing to hide your feeling threatened by other people teaching. And in from opposite of that, you get David being like, Look, there's a lot of people who want to learn about this. It's yeah. just of people want to learn about this. Like we need as many people doing this as possible, and the more totally. the merrier. And nobody's for everybody. So even better that all the different like personalities and styles of people that are coming together to have their own flavor on this. Yeah. To be there for different people. So it's just I think we both got a nice cool drink of water. Oh yeah. Relationship. Absolutely, man. All right. Well, let, let's talk about spiritual bypassing. Like, yeah. cause again, that's a topic that as you said. David has been a like a good countermeasure, countervailing kind of influence for you in that. And for me, I, you know, one of the critiques of my my path and practice when when I was in that Advaita Neo Advaita school, you know, from the whole Ramana Maharshi lineage 
a lot of the criticism of, of the teaching I was in and in our community, and this came a lot from the integral world, was like, hey, that you, you guys are doing a lot of spiritual bypassing. And I kind of was like, eh, you know, we, we were had kind of a superior attitude to that. But then afterwards, I was like, yeah, I think that's really true. But it wasn't really until studying with David and doing basic mindfulness that suddenly I was like, wait a second, there's something here that like, I, I think I intellectually understood. But then when I started to do that practice, I was like, oh God, I was like, this is, this goes really deep. And, and, and we'll, we can, we can define the terms in a moment, but like spiritual bypassing, it suddenly became really clear. And then I took Ethan Nickturn, David's son's three month course on spiritual bypassing and emptiness and, and, uh, Tonglen. Mm. And, and man, that, that illuminated the whole thing for me. I, so I want to hear your perspective on spiritual bias, bypassing, but like first we can maybe define it. And I want to talk about it because it's been transformative for me to identify it. Mm -hmm. And also just because of the particularities of my path, it was just very relevant. You know, because we live in a materialistic culture, as you alluded to, there's, it, I think it's relevant for Westerners in general. Um, but spiritual bypassing, as I understand it, and there's a lot of dimensions to it, which, which would be good to unpack. But it's this idea that um, when we sit down to practice in basic mindfulness, we learn that by focusing on the breath and coming into the present moment with a non-judgmental -judge attitude, we, we are just attending to everything that arises in our experience, right? It's completely democratic attitude. We're just there with life arising. And that's, that's the practice, right? We're just sitting with what is, and we're, and we're bringing a friendly and curious disposition to that. Now, in my practice, we had this, it, which was this sort of Advaita lineage. We had this no relationship practice where when we sat, we didn't have a meditation object like the breath. It was just sit, be still, relax, and have no relationship to anything that arises. And there was a subtle proclivity or predisposition towards going for these higher states, really yeah. just free falling and letting everything go, you know. And one of those signposts or signals to indicate, you know, you're really in, in that deep let go state was that, you know, you'd have all these special experiences of like just very profound and exquisite stillness mm -hmm. or just these, you know, where you're just soaring, right? You're mm -hmm. just, just empty, like, a, and everything just passing through you. And it's like everything that touches you is ecstatic. And it became like that, that was a lot of the orientation of our practice. And, and over time, like you experience that enough, it becomes, I think, quite naturally, maybe even habitual to orient to that as being the point of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And in the process, like finding that all the uncomfortable stuff that comes up, like both in practice and in my daily life, the, the rage, 
the confusion, the self-consciousness, the uh, insecurities, the fears, all of that isn't freedom. So I'm, I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in being free more than anything else. And so like those things, actually not so subtly, all just became like, you know what? That's just on the shelf. I don't have to deal with that because that's not important to me. I'm only concerned with freedom. So that's where my attention is. And the, the, the mindfulness practice that we did sort of made it so clear to me, like, oh, I've got all this stuff that like, I am completely not accepting about myself. You know, it's, I don't want to do, I don't want anything to do with it. And, And then, you know, starting to kind of embrace it, you know, it's, it's just a completely different thing. So that, that's, that's a little, and, and it's like, so that's been very profound for me to experience that difference. And, and I want to talk about that, but I would like to hear from you about your understanding and experience of spiritual bypassing and, and why it is such an important topic to unpack, especially as, as one's getting into meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you said I can relate to, and it was well articulated in, in the sense that I think in general, spiritual bypassing is when we're using any kind of spiritual practice to yeah. essentially skip work that needs to happen. Right. Right. And it can happen really subtly or it can happen pretty overtly. But, you know, I think there's ways that we can even deceive ourselves into sort of putting, as you said, putting things on the shelf and, and yeah. just saying, like, well, that doesn't feel great. So I'm going to skip that or, or pedestalizing the special states, like you said. You totally. Know? And really what we're doing there is sort of re- repeating a certain conditionality for ourselves that is going to keep us trapped. You know, that, that there are certain states that are preferred and others that aren't, or some that are okay and some that are not okay and bad and we don't want to look at. And with something like mindfulness, as simple and as, quote, like beginner of a practice it is, I mean, you know, it never it never leaves as part of the path, it, it, yeah. always, you know, um, but it's just, it strips everything nakedly, you know, it, it takes all the toys away. Right. <laughs> and, yes. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, practices and it's not, not that there aren't value in them, but when we're taking up certain practices and have skipped certain types of processing or looking at certain aspects or including aspects of ourselves, then they just become distractions. So it's not that those practices themselves are to be tossed entirely, but when you skip things first and go to them, like emptiness practice. You know, it could be real easy to take certain insight practices, recognizing emptiness of self, recognizing emptiness of thoughts, emptiness of emotions as a way to not deal with them at all. Oh, yeah. You know, you just go, oh, that's empty. And and we're just dodging the whole thing. And you can, with any number of practices, you can experience those special states in any given moment, but there's a reason they're not stable. Right. The reason that they they only pop up maybe momentarily or under certain very special conditions or something like that. And that's because all the rest of the karma, the habitual tendencies have not been dealt with, all right? So things like processing trauma or looking at our emotional reactivity patterns and looking at our relationship patterns and looking at the way we... Uh, view and relate to ourselves like those are things we need to look at directly and nakedly 
And if we skip all that and just go like, well, those are all empty and, you know, it's ultimately just Buddha nature and none of that's real. We're trapped. We're just kicking that down the road. Yes. You know? And so with mindfulness, we're not pushing things away. We're learning to relate to them very differently. So directly, non-judgmentally, with all the space loving non-judgmental space in the world right i mean one of the ways we might keep being conditionally loving with ourselves is by saying like oh there's no room for that particular emotion like imagine a relationship with somebody else like who can't tolerate certain emotions that someone's displaying or certain certain experiences so so they shut them down like directly or indirectly so we learn to shut those things down in ourselves and find those not acceptable so we got to sort of turn that relationship around and make room for all of it, all of it, like all the nooks mm. and crannies mm. and be able to be able to look at that directly and hold that in that non-judgmental loving space. So, you know, there's just no way around it, but through it with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in a sense, it might not actually ever go anywhere, but the relationship with it all can transform incredibly. Yeah. Right. Like we shift from, you know, maybe those automatic certain thoughts or emotions or, or things from my past continue to come up just from cause and effect habit. But instead of operating from that as being the autopilot driver of my experience, that's my basis of operation, right? I shift into a loving awareness of that thing coming up including those things in the loving awareness and relating to them differently such that they still come forward, but that's not what's running the show anymore. Right. You know, Um, you know, so it's not until we do that kind of stuff that then we can really look at the emptiness and, and see both sides of that coin. Yeah. Right. We can't just go into emptiness land. We have to deal with form too. It's not like that one is better than the other. Yeah. You got to compost these things. Yeah. I like how you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you said earlier, like, and I think this is like the heart of the thing. It's like, yeah, but how are you doing it at the dinner table with your family? You know? And, and I find all the grist for my practice comes through (laughs) my family, you know? Yeah. Like there's so much, uh, there's so much work there. And like, I've been, you know, and when I'm using examples, when I'm teaching, that's what I'm pulling on. I'm pulling on yeah. my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my child and all the ways like that I'm getting triggered all the time. And, sure. and, and to be honest, it's like that in the ways that you've been talking about, the mindfulness practice has given into your point, these things don't necessarily go away, but how I'm holding it is completely different. And, you know, when I'm feeling the anger and I'm like in the past, feeling conflicted about it, just feeling whatever triggered the anger and then the anger and then the shame and the, <laughs> and the like mm-hmm. co- confliction around the, around feeling the anger. And, you know, this just a sort of like amplifying context or, you know, around the shame and all of it. And then suddenly like, wait a second, dude, you're right in the middle of all this. Take a breath. I'm always amazed at the power of in a moment, taking that breath and connecting to my practice and suddenly being on the inside of the breath and being on the outside of that reactivity and 
suddenly there's a different there's a different choice available to me in mm. in particular just how i relate to it and yeah. starting to consciously bring some of that loving attention like hey all this is coming up right now what, how about a little self compassion how about some maitri for myself some loving kindness and it's okay you know it's actually okay that you're feeling this resentment towards your family members and that you you have all this you're not just a neurotic mess <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and 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 like having that space it it shifts at what i found it also shifts the ground from which i can speak about it with my partner if i bring a little love to myself then how i'm bringing it forward is completely different you know i'm not coming from that place of resentment and i have found that like yeah i found that to be very powerful i think you're you're bringing up something important here too about you know this is not that that shifts how we are with other people too I mean, yeah coming forward here is is that you know that kind of space that we're able to hold for certain aspects of our own experience yeah and hold those lovingly helps us then also hold that for other people and you know when we're identifying from that loving awareness of those experiences we can also identify that loving awareness in other people and not just see them for the top level experiences that are happening you know yeah um, that that shift that shift into the awareness which it is is now more into our natural state of mind more into our buddha nature more into that unconditionally loving field the, the potential to relate to things from that space and, yeah. and identify with it versus identifying with all these reactivity patterns all these defensive strategies that we've learned over lifetimes all these maybe traumatic responses that we've learned just all the automatic responses that usually that's our identity and that's who we think we are and that's where we're operating from but that awareness shift right now is like all those things can be held in that loving awareness and now a little bit more identified with that loving awareness field which yeah is our natural state of being right you know, on, underneath all the learning and you can see that for other people so it's like i think that's always good good sign of practice if not not that we're having special states going on but that spontaneous without really thinking about it the way you are with other people is holding them in such a space that they can be more in their natural state yeah you know like whatever you're saying doing whatever body speech mind our way of being is just spontaneously a solid match for whatever that person or people in front of you are needing to be held in that same way mm -hmm. um, and makes it a little bit easier for them to rest in that natural state and in, in that awareness and we're not all interacting from each other's sort of reactivity or protective parts or totally you know yeah right yeah you don't just yeah you're not just bouncing back and forth from yeah reactivity to reactivity yeah i'm curious like so you're a psychotherapist do you feel like i'm just curious about that relationship like and also maybe an example from your own experience like did you feel that your your psychotherapy practice that some of this was already very familiar to you like what we're talking about right now 
kind of bringing that loving kindness to these disowned or broken parts of ourselves, the, the, the reactive parts of ourselves. Yeah. How have you experienced that? Like when you started doing this practice more, like, can you relate directly to, to what I was talking about? I mean, I, I love your commentary on it. Like it's powerful how you articulated that, but I, I would, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you experience it personally in your life and then, and how it relates to your, your perspective as a psychotherapist and, and if those two dovetail. They definitely dovetail and I was definitely on those learning paths simultaneously. Yeah. You know? So in, in a certain way, I can't really separate them. And I, I think they, that makes sense. They're both traditions that have strengths in certain areas, you know, and, and they go well together. Like, you know, Western psychology gets into, you know, developmental psychology or attachment psychology, not mm. attachment in the Buddhist way of that word, but, you know, the relational attachment. Yeah. Um, and trauma is really well addressed and spoken about from Western psychology. And and to my understanding, not so much from Buddhist psychology. However, you know, Buddhist psychology, of course, talks about awareness and consciousness and the direct experience of our being in that ground Buddha nature in ways that certainly don't come up in Western psychology, you know, right. it's a little bit more around like developing that solid sense of self, like still from that uh, dualistic perspective, right? Which is important and healthy, but it doesn't get into the non-dual side of, of things. Right. And I think they really complement one another, you know, and um, as far as I don't, I don't know how to do therapy without some form of awareness practices on board. Yeah. Or without without that in there, that doesn't mean you know we're necessarily directly talking about Buddhism per se. It, it's different person to person, but we can sort of retrospectively talk about patterns that have happened and things like that. But unless we're able to watch, oh look what's happening right now, I think it's hard to make a different choice. Yeah. Hard to, you know, unless we're aware of like, oh, look how I'm relating to myself. Look how I'm relating to others. Like, look at the thoughts that are coming up. It's hard to change those patterns without recognizing them in the present moment. And those present, those practices that help us develop present moment awareness are best articulated from Buddhist psychology mm. um, versus Western psychology. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but then you couple, say, awareness practice or mindfulness practice with something like attachment theory or internal family systems, which are ways to articulate and maybe label all the different parts of oneself that are coming up and how they're relating to one another. Yeah. Right. They it might they might not get into that kind of framework in Buddhism. They might just say it like that, you know, that's a thought or that's a you know, that's empty or you know what I'm saying? Um yeah. you know, that's option. But but we can look a little bit more in detail to the relational patterns. I think it helps us recognize and make sense of what it is that when we bring that awareness on board, what is it that we're now aware of? Like, what are we witnessing? Yes. How, how did that come to be in the cause and effect chain on that? Right. Yeah. So I think they, they go well, nicely together. Um, I also think, you know, with therapy, you are engaging directly in a relationship with somebody in such a way that, you know, by bringing that unconditionally loving, non-judgmental space best we can to the room, we are doing an external version of what someone 
then internalizes. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's more, it's interactive in that sense. And I, I think this can happen with teachers from. That's great. But, but, right. Yeah. I, I think this can happen with, te- with our teachers from, from the Buddhist path, but the sort of direct talking about the pieces of the relationship in my experience, that's not a particular focus. I think it happens, but it's not the practices you do on your own ultimately. Yeah. Right. So not that we don't engage in those loving relationships with some with our teachers and Sangha members, but ultimately the practices are it's okay, it's just you on the pillow. Like no one can do this for you. Yeah. Right. So so I think psychotherapy in some ways does an external version of what then moves internal. And then once it moves into that internal space, it maybe starts to get best articulated from from Buddhist psychology. Dude, I love that kind of that visual or that articulation because that really does it mirrors my experience very deeply when after our community fell apart and like you know i've talked about this on the show before but it about took about two years and then suddenly like my body like was just like dude you're not okay you know i just start i started to have you know i thought i thought i was i didn't really know where i was to be honest it could be the littlest trigger and it could be a hallmark commercial and I'd just start crying and I'd be like, you know, I, this is happening a lot. And I remember saying to my wife, I was like, I, I don't think I'm okay. And I think I got to, I think I need to talk to someone. And I started working with this therapist who did this combination of, of it was called core energetics is the modality, but it was this combination of like, you know, s- some measure of talk therapy, but then also very somatic, mm-hmm. uh, like, Okay, we've kind of identified this thing. Now it's going to it's going to your body. Can you locate it in your body? And when when we when eventually I'd locate it, and then she'd be like, "All right, just stay there in that spot for a little while." And then she would just give me this prompt, like, "Is there a word or an image there?" Often I couldn't even get the word out before I was sobbing, you know. Yeah. And you know, I remember the first session we had. She had me lie, you know, that started and she had me lie down on the floor and she just put her hand on my heart Mm. and man, I was just sobbing so hard. Like just, there was so much grief and, you know, for two years I worked with her. It was mostly, you know, just grief started with just this sort of loss of the community and my teacher and my teaching and the, and the sense of purpose. And like, you know, I'd, I'd committed my entire life to that path and recommitted to it a thousand times over those 14 years, you know, through, but then when that whole space opened up, grief is, as you know, it's just indiscriminate. So everything just started to come on the table Mm. and the things that I, I didn't even know that, that I was grieving. I had no idea. And then they were just there. And I was like, Oh my God, you know? And yeah, I needed to, I needed to, to let them go. I needed to cry. And that space with her, my therapist, as you said, over time, it became internalized so that I could just cry on my own. Mm -hmm. It was safe. And, and not only did it become safe, it became like cleansing and purifying. Like I love to cry. It it, it yeah. may you know it, it helps me so much, man. It just opens and softens my heart, and I have no shame about it. It just it's just so life positive, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think 
we don't have that relationship. But uh, I, I mean, to, to your point though, I was like, I love how you talked about, she held that external space and over time it became my internal space. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a beautiful share, man. I appreciate you sharing it. And I, I, I can also relate, you know, to just that transition from, you know, I think we all, maybe not all of us, but many of us in different ways, uh, just become disconnected, whether it's because of spiritual practices or it's because of traumatic experiences or the protective layers that come up, but we get disconnected from ourselves. Yeah. We get disconnected from our body. We get disconnected from our emotions. Um, they're still there and happening, but we're just not giving them our time a day. And, you know, it's almost like, like, a, you know, we both have kids. Imagine our kids coming to us and they've got something to say. They've got something to feel. And we're not giving them that space or time. Like, that's not going anywhere. And it's yeah. not going to get any better. Yeah. Right? So, uh, eventually, that all needs its time a day. And it sort of piles up in our body. It piles Darn. up in our experience and starts influencing, like you said, like, uh, something that has nothing to do with anything all of a sudden sets us off. Like, whether it's sadness or anger or, you know, something that's just fueled by layers of other stuff that have nothing to do with, you know, the whole yeah. commercial. Yeah. And, and it's like all this stuff that needs the time of day, but we felt for whatever reason or another that it's not been okay or safe or, or it's not been okay to go there. Yeah. And and I think for some reason, you know, the thought, this is not universal truth, but this is true with a lot of men, right? Like we're not, yeah. I think there's a beautiful shift happening away from this idea, but, yeah. um, you know, just it experiencing and expressing emotion and vulnerability, right? This is not necessarily um, a male pastime. But I mean, that aside, I think any number of reasons for any of us, uh, we've just felt like we can't go there. And then we can unlearn that those yeah. protections. And sometimes that's through a relationship that is unconditionally loving and, and shows that example. You know, that's like when I was talking about Lama Sering, like he was that way. I wasn't quite ready for that, but he, he was that way. Sometimes we have those external examples. Sometimes we just start there by ourselves. And, and, and mindfulness practice is that too. You know, again, it's such a simple on the surface practice, but if we're actually bringing non-judgmental awareness to things that come up, we're starting to relate to ourselves in that loving way and allowing things to come forward by not, we're not blocking them. We're not piling on. Right. And so we start yeah. to go there more and more. And, and then, you know, I think once sometimes it's really heavy at first, like I had similar experiences that you expressed. And so sometimes it's really heavy at first and for a while, right. Yeah. And we're kind of, yeah releasing that backlog yes. right yeah but then once th there is a finite amount there right there yeah. it's not it doesn't go forever like that right and then, then we might get to a point where we're actually just like we're dealing with things as they come now not on top of the piles of undealt with shit yes and, and so yeah maybe those things on the spot right here and right now are we have stronger emotions and but they're unobstructed right and then when we're done, we're done. Like that, like yeah. that's done with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yes. we can tolerate that. It's okay. And it's not, that's not, you know, we're not putting that conditionality on ourselves. And we can also do that for other people and for yeah. our kids. Yeah. And for, 
you know, and just anybody, we're not doing that conditionality to ourselves anymore. So that means we're not laying that trip on somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. I love that. You know, part of this is we're just, I find that I'm, I'm less afraid Mm -hmm. in life, just period. You know, I, I, you know, I have, I come from, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family historically. And, you know, we're all, if you, obviously, you know, this working with people like you you come from an, a family of alcoholics and you're constantly reading the room, right? And you're de-escalating right. left, right, and center, and you learn how to avoid conflict. And like all all my siblings, we're all like super like we'll avoid conflict and see it like a hundred miles away. We're already kind of, you know, yeah. managing that. And, right. you know, all that conflict avoidant disposition, I think as my own heart has just, I've allowed it to be more just nakedly broken. Mm. Uh, I'm just the less afraid of whatever comes up, right? Yeah. And and that that's that's kind of a new experience for me, you know. Just noticing, like, if my heart's broke, I, I don't really have anything to fear in this because I'm like, I actually trust my own heart to help me navigate this stuff, and I don't have anything to hide. And yeah. That's a complete, I mean, it's just a different feeling and, and orientation, but yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. Yeah. It it is, there's more spaciousness in it. It feels like more freedom. Yeah. Lack of fear means trust. Yeah. Trust. Trusting our own heart and situation, you know, and, and, and that spaciousness for including that heart heartache and, you know, then you can be open to see that heartache in others and sort of that universal experience and not be afraid of it. You know, it's striking me, man. Like, okay. So, and, and recognizing it in others, like that you, you said, and that, mm. that resonated for me. Cause at a certain point I was really, I just, really, I was like, I was like, God, everyone's broken. <laughs> you know, everyone is so broken and, it, it's a whole, it's like, I when I kind of just, just saw more and more the depth to which like my own heart was broken. And, and I mean that in the best sense and that it wasn't going to be unbroken. There was just going to be deeper levels to it and learning, you know, to live with a certain kind of bittersweetness and poignancy of like, oh, like the more you go through life, the more, you know, you make mistakes or you're you're burned or and whatnot and like we're all making these large and small mistakes and learning how to forgive ourselves for these things and then bringing that context of loving kindness there's just a a rich bitter sweetness to all of it and like i after i did this death and dying training a couple weeks ago at in a at a local zen center and you know, was like just ripped open from that experience. Yeah, I bet, I and, bet. and it was so, it was so good, man. I was so like appreciated it on so many levels, but it, this, this sense of like, oh my God, it, it was this sense of like, everyone's broken and we're all kind of in different relationship to that brokenness, but that, you know, our culture does not really support us in this it does there's that kind of assertion of a kind of well you know the toxic positivity i guess is yeah. one word for it good vibes only <laughs> yeah right right whereas like in my experience it's the opposite like the richness is coming from just letting it all be there yeah. and seeing 
myself and everyone around me a lot differently from that perspective. And yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, what's come to mind is uh, the first noble truth of suffering. Yeah. Suffering, sickness, old age, death is part, part of the deal. And, you know, I might, I might use that language even more so than the brokenness only uh, I'm with you on what you were saying there, but I might just differentiate that in that, you know, the orientation of calling it brokenness almost sounds like it's a little in the ballpark of that original sin bit. You know what I mean? But oh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, but I do think it points the, like if the relative reality that there's no bypassing, right? There's no yeah. practices that like, yeah, it helps you see also ultimate truth, but we don't drop relative truth unless, unless you're talking about full on enlightenment and Buddhahood after this life during this life, we got the relative thing going on. Yeah. And if we got the relative thing going on, meaning we got this body, and as a result of this body, we feel separate from the world, then there's going to be heartbreak that comes with that. Yeah. Standard issue, right? There's just going to be heartbreak that comes with feeling separate from the universe. There's going to be heartbreak with having people who feel separate from us come and go and lose them. And yeah. that body's going to change and their body's going to change and go and be gone and they're going to die and and that as long as we experience that even though we might get familiar with ultimate as well the relative is still part of the deal and with that relative is going to come that heartache and and we can avoid that we can bypass that we can but it's still there so if we do what you're talking about there in terms of bringing that close like becoming more familiar and intimate with that experience of heartbreak and recognizing the universality of that in everybody else as opposed to all these strategies to try to avoid it oh yeah it doesn't get us anywhere no you know we can we can warm up to this and learn how to very have a very different relationship with it not be surprised by it and and we've got more energy to hold it with understanding and with loving space and um that's different than dodging it or suppressing it or pushing it away or, or not even thinking about it even, you know, and then, and, and, and again, repeating that sort of conditionality that says like only the good stuff is allowed or only the good vibes or like, you know, you got to keep showing up only these ways, but not other ways. I mean, you see this not just in our relationships or in messaging, but uh, you know, work environments, like it doesn't matter how you're doing or feeling like you got to be productive. It's like, yeah. You know, we're we're just kind of perpetuating that conditionality to one another, which is really what the trauma is. That it, it creates that disconnection. Yeah, it's arguably what trauma is that disconnection because yeah. we can't we can't go there. Totally, man. Yeah. Mm. I like that frame. I like putting that frame around it in terms of the first noble truth. And yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, and sometimes we focus on that first one and think like, well, that's just part of the deal, like, and the and you know, but the rest of them also show how can we can relate to that suffering differently, right? Oh you know, yeah, as you know, and and um, it doesn't just mean, you know, we're just only focusing on suffering and it's all like depressing and drib from there on when we acknowledge that, but it's like there's by by addressing that directly we can find freedom in that yeah yeah absolutely i'm curious you and uh 
Well, we, we touched on this a little bit before the call, but, and you mentioned recovery early on. You have some experience in the context of recovery and, mm-hmm. and addiction. Can you, can you speak a little bit on to that in relationship to like, you know, how has that played into your practice? How has that like been a part of your own growth in terms of, you know, you've been in recovery for this amount of time. Yeah. How does that shape your relationship to practice, who you are, how you show up? If I rewind the tape on, you know, how the not so healthy patterns began, you know, it's hard to dial it into any one simple thing, but I can definitely see like a combination of being a fairly sensitive kid and like picking up on what other people are feeling and what's going on around me and, and sort of not having the skill set to know what to do with any of that. It was all unmanageable and I didn't have healthy ways of relating to that. And that manifests itself in anxiety and not knowing how to deal with the anxiety that becomes that separation from ourselves. That like, like a survival pattern to disconnect with what we feel like we can't manage, you know, and didn't attempt to do it deliberately, but it just turned out like, Oh, when I drink that anxiety goes away. Yeah. (laughs) That, that works out, you know, and that, particular drug of choice is is a pretty prevalent one in our society pretty woven in and it's yeah it's an easier one to also justify and overlook uh how strong of a place it has in our lives because it's just so woven into the fabric of our society yeah yes but it's it's a way to create this false sense of comfort and emotional management for short term which it might arguably work short term but kind of keeps kicking that unmanageability down the road Mm. keeps that disconnection going and you know has other consequences that lots of times people don't want and as i was starting to go through the recovery process which started long before i stopped drinking you know um it, it was reconnecting with my body reconnecting with emotional states reconnecting with others intimately yeah that started being like okay there are other paths like this is doable this is manageable you know like i i can there are other ways to do this didn't even realize that that's how i was doing that yeah you know i just knew that that was like causing problems on occasion and needed to change like i don't i think there's the awareness that like that's what place was holding in my life yeah um but once started kind of reconnecting that became more and more apparent it's like clearer what the cause and effect of things are and you know uh, what leads up to things and what comes after things so um you know shortly after my my son was born i just like woke up one day just not feeling good at all it was useless and it was just like something clicked and there had been enough healing from other ways that it was like it was i was ready to let go of that relationship because there were other relationships that were healthier there now like yes you know a lot of people get into addictive patterns because that particular relationship is actually the most predictable stable relationship right yeah even if it's bad it's like i know what it's going to give me you know and it's not a conscious thought but it's just how it works you know so you have to break up with it <laughs> and, yes. and that helps when you've got other healthier relationships, including your internal one to then move away from that toxic relationship, just like right. a person that's n- not a healthy relationship. And so 
you know, I think that reconnecting with ourselves, that developing confidence in our ability to manage our experiences, I think that that's a common through line for people going through recovery is that there had not been another way to do that per se presented and and this habit the or whatever habit it might be has taken over and and i think there's something also universal about the notion of addiction that like you know while some of them some people might have the relationship with particular substances like let's all take a look at how we i don't know relate to our phone or how we relate to uh you know distractive media or how we might relate to our work and our job like these can just as equally be ways that we check out on life because life feels unmanageable. Oh yeah. You know? And oh, yeah. Uh, right. There's just, there's something, there's something in our society where, you know, we think of addictions and, you know, the particular veins and think of the substances, but really it's more, it's more pervasive than that. I hate to say. I'm with you a hundred percent, man. And, and there are a lot of things that are sort of, not only not in support of, but promoting our remaining disconnected from ourselves. Yeah. A lot of things that fuel our disconnection and, and continue us from being disconnected and benefit from us remaining disconnected, right? Like mm -hmm. certain toxic work environments that you would have to be disconnected from the fact that you are not finding meaning from this and that you're exhausted and that you're totally stressed out. That's the only way you could keep doing that gig, for example. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. You have to be cut off from yourself so that addiction remains you know yes um and, and there are some that are like that's a socially supported addiction you right know? right in learning to reconnect with myself and by way of connecting with others you know through that example and with meditation learning to connect with the self actual nature not just those protective parts and coping strategy parts which is what you identify with when you don't connect with true nature that helped me and continues to help me in recovery and, and help others to reconnect with themselves and become familiar with what those strategies are and those protective parts are and relate to those differently. Yes. Can you define for people, you use the word uh, true nature there. Can you define for people what you mean by that in terms of connecting to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, with true nature, we can think of Buddha nature, we can think of bodhicitta, we can think of uh, like an awakened heart-mind. So we figure that, you know, there's the aspect of our mind that underneath and before all of our experiences of our habitual conceptual mind that remains, that's open, loving, spacious, that's not stained by all the aspects of our conceptual framework, you know, like figure we come into this world, we don't have the idea of being a separate self or like I'm Noel over here and that's everybody else over there. Like that, that develops over time. And right. we don't even have that conceptual framework to like 18 months. We're a little bit closer to that natural state of mind. And then we start learning on top of it, it never goes away. But the clouds start to develop like, okay, I guess I'm over here and I start to identify with this body. And then not only do I start to feel like a separate self and that dualistic perspective starts to develop, but I, there are attributes. I, there are things I attribute to myself and qualities and characteristics and, and, 
and I have reactions to things that are out there and I say, those are good. Those are bad. And, and the conditionality starts to build like, Oh, this is when Noel's quote doing a good job. And this is when Noel's doing a bad job. Or, yes. or this is when Noel's lovable or not lovable. That conditionality starts to build. So all these things get heaped on top of this original goodness, so to speak, this Buddha nature, this potential for remaining completely awake despite the daydream of all of those thinking patterns mm. that get developed. And even when they're happening, we can see through them as, as clouds. And we can think of original nature, true nature as the sun. Uh, this is a common metaphor. And, and it might be cloudy. It might be rainy. It might be nighttime. And we might seem like the sun's gone, but it's never, never really true. It's always there. It just might be obscured or there might be something dark, you know, around it. Uh, but it's always there. You know, so, but we identify as those clouds. We identify as those, like, I really think I'm the story of Noel that I've collected over the years. Right. Right. That's, that's like a really, it feels like a really solid experience, even though I've never been the same body twice, never been the same mind twice, never been the same role or, you know, in relationships twice, but it feels really solid. There's something underneath that delusional solidity. And that's our true nature of mind. And and so that's like, I think really what healing is, is unlearning all that. It's not developing something new. It's not making more of that natural state of mind or that Buddha nature. It's just recognizing that it's always been right here and getting caught less and less in all the stuff that makes me think otherwise. Less and less into that conditionality. Hmm less and less into those like ways we small ourselves right and that's what healing is it's not Mm. like okay someday if i just change up who i am then i'll be better it's like no it already is beautifully perfect underneath all the shit on top yeah you know um that clouds our experience it doesn't even have to go away we just have to recognize it for what it is that's awesome yeah that's beautiful i mean i i i feel like that might be a a nice note to kind of start to wrap up on. And uh, yeah, I think the last, I just wanted to uh, make a comment because when you were talking about addiction, sort of all the manifestations of addiction and addictive behavior, recently I wrote about this in a post, but it was just, I was recognizing these ways, implicit in what you were saying is all these ways we avoid a rela- avoid relationship, right? And we mm-hmm. disconnect. Again, this was just coming through my mindfulness practice, just seeing ways in which I was avoiding relationship as a parent with my child. Not everyone's obviously parents or has this experience, and but I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to this. It's just when it just gets to be too much, right? And you're yeah. just like, yeah. I am done. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to deal with this. But you, you know, as a parent, you don't really have a choice in that, and also depending on how well resourced I am and all sorts of things you like the conditions for that are always changing but I just would notice this way in which I would check check out of relationship with her and go into a more two-dimensional sort of rules-based mm-hmm. approach where I'm not authentically really relating to my daughter and knowing that she can feel that and uh, the mindfulness just started to kind of center that disconnect for me a little bit more and being like, no, I gotta, I can't just check out like this. And as hard as it is, and as much as I'm just like, oh, I just want to get out, you know, 
Yeah. It's like another one of those areas of disconnect that instead of going on my phone or just doing, or, or even like just going and cleaning, you know, anything, but yep. this, yep. you know, I started to, it's just the light of the practice starts to shine on all these things. And yeah. I have found that to be very illuminating and, you know, it's all of it's implicating, but in, in a way that I'm grateful for. Yeah, man, kids, that's like, that's really is grist for the mill in my experience <laughs> oh, totally. too. Just like, it's, it's just the greatest mirror. Right? Ah. Like for like all the automatic stuff and the ways we kind of default and, you know, are, are most challenged and everything for sure. And like, man, they're just the best, the kids in, in our relationship to them, maybe relationships as a whole, but certainly kids yeah. like yours are like just the best teachers to really show us where it's at. <laughs> Completely, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Noel, thank you. Thank you for, yeah, for sharing so richly and deeply. And I know everyone on uh, listening is going to get a lot out of this and, and it's been really rich. I, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate what you do. Awesome. All right. Can you give people like a little bit of, uh, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, connect with you, get on your mailing list, can you just share some stuff about you know, what's coming up for you and how people can connect. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I'm on Instagram at wake up sleepy Buddha and, uh, I run a center called the Boston center for contemplative practice. So it's the bccp.com. And that's where I post classes that I'm running, but also I host and support other teachers who teach different things as well, support them on the back end. So you can check out a bunch of different things that we run through there. I also work for Dharma Moon and and their mindfulness meditation teacher training there at dharmamoon.com. So those are the main ways you can get a hold of me and see see what we're up to. And at least everyone check out, get on uh, Noel's Instagram because he posts some good stuff there. Like, some really great Dharma quotes and, you know, he also plays good music on there. You get, you break, you break out the guitar sometimes and sing soulful tunes. And I I like what you put up there. Thanks Morgan. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. All right, brother. Thank you so much. All right. So I hope you enjoyed my interview with Noel Coakley. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. I can't underscore enough what a big difference that makes for our exposure in the algorithm on iTunes, and please leave us a rating and review. It's a big help. And just a reminder, if you're interested in starting a meditation practice, or if your meditation practice has lapsed, and you're looking for some inspiration, I encourage you to join me for the upcoming Coming Home Mindfulness Meditation Training Program starting on February 8th. And we host these training programs. They're five weeks long. We meet once a week in the evening, and then there's an optional morning meditation Monday through Friday. It's a wonderful opportunity to kickstart your practice, add fuel to your practice, or if you've never meditated before, if you never had a daily practice, to do that, to start a practice. You can check that out over at About Meditation. Also, for listeners of the One Mind Podcast, you can take an additional 20% off the sale price that's currently up there with the 
coupon code or the discount code one mind 23 it's one word all one word one mind 23 so just plug that in in the shopping cart and you can take an additional 20% off the cost of the course so let's end with a quote and today we're going to do one short and simple from Oscar Wilde the poet he says it is not the perfect but the imperfect that is most in need of our love. <laughs>